Please turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's ask God for grace to study His Word and to hear His Word. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh, Father in heaven, we praise You and we thank You. We thank You for the privilege we have to be able to gather here publicly and not have to hide and in secret like our brothers and sisters have to do in other countries. <clears throat> we thank You that as Chris exhorted us to sing loudly, that we can sing loudly instead of muted and mumbled as, as our brothers and sisters have to do in lands of persecution. We thank you that we have Bibles and it's not illegal. We thank you that you have granted us the grace and ability to read. We thank you that we can gather together and study your word together and have your word opened up for us. Father, help us, we pray, with all of these immense privileges that we have. Help us to really grow, we pray. Help us to take advantage of them. Help us to be the people that, that uh, you want us to be, Father. Help us to hear your voice in this text today and help us to grow in grace and to, to live out what you want us to live out or you would not have inspired this text for us. So bless us now. Be our teacher through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. <clears throat> Many people are anticipating that the year 2024 is going to be a very difficult year. Um, certainly, um, as the, you look around the world right now, right now there are actually more armed conflicts in the world today than since 1945, which was World War II. And so there's a lot of armed conflicts, and that seems to be intensifying, actually. And so people are worried about 2024. Certainly in, the, in, in America, there's an election, and that's always difficult for a country that's as polarized as ours. And in fact, the polarization in our country where people are, are, are getting further and further apart from each other is becoming very, very uh, disruptive to our society in such a way that uh, it almost seems like people have gotten to a point um, that they can't discuss anything anymore. Uh, discussions immediately lead to disagreements, which immediately lead to fighting, which immediately can lead to yelling and attacking the other person and breaking, fracturing relationships. And we seem to have actually gotten to a point, I think part of this was a breakdown in parenting for my generation and uh, my generation once we became parents. And I think it was a breakdown of parenting too that people uh, really struggle to get along and so they just keep dividing and fighting and dividing and fighting. And this culture, so we as the church have a tendency for this culture to wash into the church and, and for people to bring this kind of animosity into the church. And that's very, very dangerous. And Satan is poised and ready to exploit the situation and to divide the church. He wants to divide the church. And he wants to frustrate God's great goals in redemption, which center on the church. And that's what we're going to, that's what we're looking at here in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to see. So let me, as we uh, turn once again to Ephesians 4, let me just kind of give you the context of where we've been so far 
and, and where we, uh, to, to help us to understand the verse we're going to look at today. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us that we're to live out the calling by which we were called uh, in verse 1, and then he talks about our unity in Christ, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then in verse 7, he tells us that uh, the risen Christ has given gifts to the church, and each person has actually been given a gift. And, and, and the, uh, the passage that was read, the 1 Corinthians 12 passage uh, that, that was read here, that Jake read, it, it talks about this fact that we're all given gifts, we're all part of a body. And, and Paul says that here in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he talks specifically about some of these gifts. Uh, you'll notice that the, the, the passage that Jake read had a lot more gifts listed. Uh, this one, Paul just focuses on four, uh, five actually, the apostles, the prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers. And then he tells us that these gifts have a purpose and a goal for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body. And then the goal is verse 13, till or until we all come to, and that word means arrive at, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So the first goal is unity, and then a second to, to a perfect or mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Unity and maturity are the two that they're focusing toward. But I wanted, so I want to focus again today, and especially in light of, you know, the, the, the anticipation of, of more division in 2024, I want us to focus on this idea of unity once again today, until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And I've entitled this sermon, Unity, dot, 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 yeah, uh, better yet, oneness, oneness. And the reason I did that, I, I'm making a distinction here between unity and oneness a little bit. And the reason I'm doing that is because of the unique word that Paul has chosen to use here for the word unity in verse 13. Paul has chosen to use the word henotes, henotes. And henotes begins with hen, hen. And that's not a chicken, kids. That's not a chicken. But it'll help you to remember. Hen, a hen, a chicken. You know who lays eggs? Hen. That actually is the Greek word, hen, but in Greek, it didn't mean chicken. In Greek, it meant one. It meant one. Hen was one, okay? And this word henotes is a unique word, and its root means oneness, one. And in fact, this word henotes that Paul uses here, the, the Greek dictionary, the lexicon of the ancient Greek words and how they were used, states it like this, a state of oneness, hen, a state of oneness, or being in harmony and accord. Now, what's really unique, what, what kind of, when you're reading this in Greek, what kind of catches your eye as you're studying this is that this word is only used two times in the entire Bible. Only two times in the entire Bible, which means when the Holy Spirit was inspiring Paul and when Paul was writing, he went and got a very unique word, a very powerful word, hen. He got that unique word, henotes, and he used it here. And it's only used two times in the Bible. And what's really interesting is those two times that it's used in the Bible are actually in, in Ephesians 4. It's only two times it's ever used. It's a powerful word of oneness. And it's used twice in the Bible. And both of them are in the chapter that we're studying. Chapter 4 and verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the henites. Endeavoring to keep the oneness, the unity, the state of oneness and harmony and accord 
he says in verse uh, 3, of the Spirit, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then in verse 13, until we come to the henotes, until we come to that harmony, that oneness, that oneness of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. So isn't it interesting? In verse, thir- in verse 3, Paul tells us, endeavor to keep what we have, henotes, the oneness, And then in verse 13, he says, Christ has given all these gifts to the church in order that we would arrive at, we would continue to maintain and deepen, and through the centuries, the church would know this oneness, this oneness. Now, you see, this idea of oneness is much richer and deeper than and fuller than what sometimes we, using in our day and age, the idea of unity uh, or the word unity can actually mean. Like, sometimes we think of unity meaning, oh, yeah, we need to be unified in the church. We need to be unified. And sometimes we, we, we sort of lower that down to sort of mean we just need to get along. We just need to get along. We, but the Bible means more than that when it uses this word of oneness. You see, in our generation, peace sometimes means, for instance, in nations, peace means peaceful coexistence. And peaceful coexistence means we're not fighting each other. So we have peace. We're not fighting each other. As long as we don't start shooting each other, then we have peace. That's called peaceful coexistence. Or it even gets worse. We have, we have in this nuclear age, we have a doctrine called MAD, M-A-D, MAD. And what is MAD? MAD is mutual assured destruction. Mutual assured destruction. That's, how, that's why we're not nuking Russia right now because they'll nuke us. We're not nuking China right now, because they'll nuke us. China's not nuking us right now, because we'll nuke them. And that's called mutual assured destruction. And so some people think of this as peace. We have peace because we have mad. Because I know if I push my button, and you're going to push your button, and the whole world's going to blow up, so we better get along. That's not what the Bible means by oneness, okay? That's not what God is asking us for. Let's just try to, you know, keep our nose clean and not, don't get in each other's way and, and keep all fights down to a minimum, and that's unity in the church. No, that's not what the Bible means at all. God's will is something richer, something deeper. What his church should be, what his body should be, what the body of Christ should be is something richer and deeper. And that's why by the, by the, the leading of the Holy Spirit, Paul takes this unique word, henotes, this oneness, a state of oneness, and he brings it on. So let's, let's study this concept out, this place where oneness comes in and how this, this so amplifies all that is Scripture. When the Bible speaks of oneness, when the Bible speaks of oneness, it speaks of unity in that sense. It speaks of harmony. It speaks of accord. It speaks of oneness amongst individuals. When the Bible speaks of oneness, it's not like Buddhism. Buddhism teaches that that the goal is that my individual personality will be lost and absorbed into the, into the great spirit and personality that has somehow formed this cosmos. It's a non-personal spirit, and my goal is that my personal spirit will blend into that, and, and I will find nothingness. That is not what the Bible means by oneness. And the Bible does not mean by oneness what communism and socialism teaches. That the state, 
the state, the group, the corporate is more important than the individual. And so I must sacrifice everything. I'm nothing. It's everything. And if I get in the way and they shoot me, I should applaud that because I'm getting in the way that, no, no, no. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Bible teaches a perfect harmony and union and unity and closeness and affection and oneness between distinct individuals. How do I know that? Because first of all, the entire reality, the entire universe, everything that exists down to every atom is created by a triune God. A triune God. One God. One God. Perfectly unified. Perfectly one in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in being, one deity, one will, one purpose, one divine essence, one glory. I and the Father, Jesus said, are one. When you see me, you see the Father. We're one. We're one. We're to baptize people in the name, singular. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. Not in the names of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so you have this mystery of three being one and one in three. Unity with diversity, oneness, and yet in the individual diversity. And then, as we studied the book of, of, of uh, Ephesians, then we're introduced this idea of union with Christ. That, that we are united to Christ. That there is a oneness that forms between us and Christ. We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. We are predestined in him to adoption. We are redeemed in him. We die on the cross with him. We're buried with him. We're raised up with him. We have newness of life in him. His life flows through us. And there is one head and one body, this oneness between us and Christ. And it's so real. Look at how it's described in chapter 2 and verse, uh, and verse 6. In chapter 2 and verse 6, it says, We are raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that made to sit together is a past completed tense. We are already sitting together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we're one with him. I love how the book of Colossians puts it. In Colossians 3, earlier on, before this verse uh, that we're about to read comes up, Paul says, And you were raised with Christ. Seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. And then Paul says this in Colossians 3, 3 and 4. For you died. <laughs> you died. When did you die? You died with Christ. You died in union with Christ. You died. And look at this. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Notice that. Your life right now is hidden with Christ in God. You are at the right hand of the throne of the Father because your head, of which you are one with, and you are the body, you are the body, he is the head. This union between you and Christ, you are actually at, the, at, uh, at, at that place with him. You're, you're hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, now notice this. Notice the playoff here. I'm so glad Brady put these both together. Notice that you have a life. But your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's your individuality. 
But notice here in the next verse, Christ is our life. There's the union. Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And that's the beauty of this union with Christ. And now this oneness that is the Trinity and this oneness that we have with Christ then issues itself in the oneness that we have with one another. And this is very, very, very important to God. This oneness, this oneness is very, very important. Turn with me to the book of John, if you will. John chapter 17. And when you, when you turn to John 17, whenever you, you're reading John 17, there should be a sense, and I, I certainly, I know that many of you here know this passage very well. There should be a sense that we are just walking into a sacred place right now. You know, Shamas, take your shoes off. Because John 17 is that great, wonderful last prayer of Jesus that's re recorded. And I want you to notice, this is, this is the night he's going to be arrested. It's just hours before the crucifixion. Jesus is praying. And we have this whole chapter, which is a prayer of Jesus. But I want you to notice what was on his heart at that point. And notice what it says. Look at verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. <laughs> Isn't that wild? This is Jesus praying for us right there. Right there, Jesus praying for us. We came to believe through the apostles' word, didn't we? That they all may be one. Hen. That they all may be one. As you, Father, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The oneness of the Trinity. That they also may be one in us. Union with Christ. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. That they may be one. Unity in the church. Just as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may be made perfect in one. At the, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The world's supposed to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he was sent by the Father, and that all that is in the New Testament and the New Covenant is true when they look and see our oneness. When they look and see our oneness. And this was on Jesus' mind and Jesus' heart and prayer. And that is because this is God's ultimate goal. Let's go back to the book of Ephesians again. And remember Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10, which is probably one of the most important verses in this amazing book because it's basically God's big picture. In Ephesians 1.10, it says this, that in the dispensation, that word probably better translated administration or even the plan, of the fullness of the times, he might gather together, here's the word again, in one he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Notice the union with Christ. Notice the oneness. Notice that the entire cosmos, heaven and earth, God's goal is that in the final dispensation, the final administration, the final plan, that the goal in the fullness of times is that everything would be gathered together in one 
in Christ. And so this idea of oneness, of God being with us, of God being united with us, of us living and dwelling with God, of God being one with his people, of the triune God, three that is one, will dwell with this one people who have been in Christ before the foundation of the Lord. That's the ultimate goal. You get a sense of the beauty of that in Revelation 21, 3, where it says this, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. There's that oneness. And he will dwell with them. There's oneness. And they shall be his people. There's oneness. And God himself will be with them and be their God. God's desires to pull all of this together in one under Christ Jesus. And we, as the, then as it gets worked out in redemption, as it gets worked out in the church, and this is what we've been studying uh, throughout the last year in the book of Ephesians, God then, in Christ, God pulls together humanity into one. Look at, again at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. And here we have Jew and Gentile, but, but that actually includes all of the new humanity into one. There's oneness right there. And has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man, one new humanity from the two, one new mankind, one mankind from the two, thus making peace. And one of the things that he did in redemption in making that peace is he also gave us all one spirit, one Holy Spirit. And, we're, and, and we all have the same spirit in us. And that's, that, that is to add, be a part of an, and a vital aspect to our oneness. We are in union with Christ. The three is one. We are in union with that. And now we have the Holy Spirit, which binds us all together as one because there's one spirit. There's not a separate Holy Spirit in me and one in Henry and a separate Holy Spirit in Stephanie. There's one Holy Spirit, one spirit, the same spirit that leads and, and, and guides and, and, and nurtures and, 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 and enables me is doing the same thing to Henry, the exact same spirit. There's not a spirit over in Eagle Street and a spirit over in Hickory Road. It's one spirit and it's at work. And that's what he says. Look at verse 18. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And see, then the idea is that we're supposed to be living this out. Look at chapter 3 and verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's this idea. Fellow heirs, same gospel, oneness. And this is God's whole plan to show the world of what he is doing. He's creating this one oneness, as it were, in Christ Jesus for all the world to see. Look at verse 9. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church or through the church, 
to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am bringing all things together in one. And what I'm doing is I'm doing it through this church. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, black and white, Hispanic and Asian. I'm bringing all of them together, rich and poor, educated and uneducated. I'm bringing them all together one. I'm uniting them to my son. They're united to us in one, oneness, one, one. And so notice what Paul says. Paul says then in chapter 4 and verse 1, he says this. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This is your calling. This is who you are. When I preached on that, on that verse several weeks ago, I entitled that sermon, Be the Unity That You Are. And that's what Paul was saying. Paul's not saying, hey, let's strive for something cool. Let's try to become one. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, you are one. You're the redeemed. Live it out. And then he tells us how to live it out. He says, in all lowliness and gentleness. And then notice what he says in verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the oneness of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then notice what he says in verse 4. One body and one spirit, just as you were called. There's the calling we're supposed to live out. In one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. One, 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 one. Live out this oneness. Now, that doesn't mean that we all just are in lockstep and we are cookie cutter the same and we all dress the same and act the same and think the same and be the same and lose our individuality. No, that's Buddhism, that's communism, and that's a cult. That's not Christianity. In fact, look at verse 7. It highlights our individuality. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. There are unique gifts. There are unique graces. There is all kinds of unique things going on, and yet it's all one. Just like the human body. Just like the human body. It's all one. It's all one. There's one other thing that God, uh, that I wanted to just highlight before we get real practical about this. And that's... It's illustrated, this oneness is illustrated one more way, in a powerful way, in the Bible and in the book of Ephesians, and that's in Ephesians 5 having to do with marriage. And I want to, get, I want to confess something to you at this point. I've been a pastor and preaching for over 40 years now, and it always, there was always something in the back of my mind that didn't understand quite fully why this Christ church husband-wife connection came together in Paul's mind. Was it an, just an illustration? Like Christ in the church is an illustration of how married couples should get along? Is it a good teaching tool? It, it never quite gelled completely for me. I just didn't get it quite completely until I immersed myself in the book of Ephesians and immersed myself over this last year in what was going on, and suddenly I had this aha moment. The thing that unites Christ and the church and men and husbands and wives in marriage is this concept of oneness. This concept of oneness. And see, the Holy the, the God triune is three in one. The body of Christ is multiple people in one with Christ. And in marriage, husbands and wives form oneness. And so, 
Christ in the church isn't an illustration of marriage. Marriage is an illustration of Christ in the church. And in, 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 in that sense, unity and diversity in one. And notice how Paul speaks like this. Look at verse uh, 23. He says this, 523. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he is the savior of the body. Now in that verse, he actually speaks of Christ in, in very connected ways, but it's just nuanced. He's the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. And then when he gets to husbands, he says this to the husbands, verse 25, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. And here he's getting the idea of the head of the body. He gave himself for the church. He died for his church. He sacrificed to his church. And this is what we looked at in Sunday school today. Headship is to provide uh, the flourishing of one who has, you've been given responsibility for. And that's what Christ did. But then he gets to this idea of one body of oneness between Christ and his body. And look at verse 28. He says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Now here's the, here's the link. Just as the Lord does the church. You see, he is the savior of the body, he is the Lord of the body. He, we are his body. There is a oneness here. And Paul is saying that the oneness between a husband and wife is that same oneness, that oneness. Now notice Paul now starts talking about the church. And he says this in verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, now he quotes Genesis 2, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, cleaved, glued to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There is union. There is union right there. And then notice what he says in verse 32. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Oneness, one flesh, flesh and bones, one flesh, Christ in his body, Christ in the church. By the way, the oneness that should be in a marriage, husband and wife, the Bible says, the two shall become one flesh. This is oneness. This is oneness. So let's just pause here for a second. Let's think about marriage. You could go to some married couples and you could say, hey, tell me about your marriage. How are things going in your marriage? And they might say this, how would you, or you could even say this, how would you define unity in your marriage? And they would say, well, whew. you know, we just try to keep arguing down to a minimum. That's how I could define our marriage. Some will even be more crass. Well, the old bat stays on her side, I stay on my side. And that's how we get along. That's how they define unity in their marriage. We just try to get along the best we can. We have good days, we have bad days, but hey, her stuff's in the closet, my stuff's in the closet, I'm too old to move, she's too old to move, so we just make this thing work. That's not oneness. Oneness is when a married couple can say, I can't believe how close we've got. I had a dear friend, a very dear friend, a very close and dear friend, a lifelong friend. And this man married a woman, and she was not a nice person. She was not a good person. Not nice. She was very self-centered, super self-centered. 
And my poor friend, for 20 years, lived under that. I didn't even like being around her. So, so our, our relationship distanced a little bit. And then she left him, and she divorced him. He had biblical grounds for divorce. She left him. And he remarried, and he married a dear, wonderful, godly woman. He married a dear, wonderful, godly woman. And he said to me after that, and our relationship was able to get closer again because I couldn't be around the first wife. Um, he said, Todd, I never envisioned in my life how wonderful marriage can be. See, he was experiencing oneness. It's more than we get along. We're close. We love each other. We love being together. We love talking together. It's amazing how much we think alike. Our kids are starting to tell us that we look like each other. She's my better half. Isn't that an interesting phrase, by the way? It's a phrase of oneness. She's my better half. And if that moment comes that death do us part, there's a sense that I don't feel whole anymore. Before I met her, I was whole. But once this amazing, mysterious oneness came, this love oneness, now that death has parted us, I don't feel whole anymore. I've lost my way a little bit. And widows and widowers feel this way. Now, that doesn't mean that when there was oneness in this wonderful marriage, there wasn't disagreement. There. They were still male and female. They still saw things different, approached life different, thought about things differently. And yet in their oneness, they, they decided they were not going to let that affect their oneness. They weren't going to affect whether she likes this and he likes this. She prefers this and he prefers that. She acts this way, he acts that way, this and that. She would like to paint the house this way. He would like to paint it. They did. Okay, okay, okay. We'll disagree. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. But we're not going to let that affect our oneness. We're going to laugh it off in the end. We're going to love each other. We're going to hug each other. And we're going to go out and have a great dinner together. And we're going to be friends. And we're going to keep that because nothing is going to break this oneness. Nothing. That's God's goal for the church. That's what the church is supposed to be. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. Endeavoring. That is a hugely active, sweaty, athletic, straining, push forward, get to the goal line, win it all, win it. That's that kind of word. Endeavoring to keep the oneness of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's God's will for the church. And he is, Christ has ascended into heaven and given apostles and prophets and, past, and evangelists and pastors and teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints so that the saints could do the work of ministry. And I'm going to scratch that now for the rest of the time I read. I read Ephesians from my Bible preaching this. It's going to use the word service because I think that means a whole lot more. Uh, it's the word diakonos and it means service, diakonia. For the work of service... For the edifying of the body of Christ, so the body is built up. So, so the pastors and teachers equip the saints, and the saints do the work of service, and that edifies and builds up the body of Christ 
until we come to oneness of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. God wants oneness in his church. God does not want the church to function with peaceful coexistence. God does not want the church to function where people say, hey, you know, them people stay on their side of Dodge, I stay on my side of the Dodge, and then we, that way we don't start fighting. God does not want the church to just be, well, let's just try to keep the lid on and all get along. God does not want the church to be, let's try to keep fighting down to a minimum. God does not want the church to be, let's keep to our own cliques and leave the other group alone and let's not fight. That's not what God wants the church to be. God wants the church to be a deeply loving oneness of mind, heart, soul, and body. People loving, people united, people close, a closeness, a harmony, a cohesion, a family feeling. This is my, this is my family. A people who are special and dear, a people that we're committed to, a people that we, we seek to be as we, uh, we seek for a oneness, as families are supposed to be a oneness, as marriage is supposed to be a oneness, as union with Christ is, is oneness, as the Trinity is oneness. We are to be experiencing this oneness. Listen to how Paul, Peter writes it. In 1 Peter 1.22, he says this, Since you have purified your hearts in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. That is not just keeping the lid on things, friends. That is not just staying on your side of Dodge so that you don't start yelling at somebody. That is not just trying to keep fighting down to a minimum. That is because you are united through this Holy Spirit and the truth has come into your souls and purified you, Love the brethren sincerely, genuinely, really love them. That's the goal, is to genuinely, really love these people. When I think of these people in this room, I love them. And not only that, to love them fervently with a pure heart. This is God's will for the church. This is God's will for the church. We are one. We are one. You say, yeah, but Todd, does that mean we all have to agree on everything? No. We just have to agree that when we disagree, we're going to disagree in love. We're going to disagree in humility. We're going to forbear with one another. See how Paul's already said it? Look at verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. I was going to turn us at this point, but if you flip over one page in your Bible, you know what you're going to find? Maybe perhaps you could read this as you're meditating on this. And that's Ephesians, Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, Paul says, love one another, esteem others better than yourselves. Don't think of your own interests, think of the interests of others. And, and, and be of one mind, one heart, one accord. And then he says this, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, who didn't consider equality with God equal to be grasped, but gave up all of his rights, gave up all of his privileges, and came down and became a man. And then finding himself as a man, he went to die, and he went to die on the cross. He did all of that. Have that mindset in you. Be like Christ amongst yourselves, and you will be, you will be one. Well, how can this come about in the church? How does this work in the church? And I'd like to close by giving us some practical suggestions. This works in the church like this. Look at verse 11. He gave himself some to be apostles and prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Now, when we studied that, we said we have the apostolic and, and prophetic word right here. We have the apostle. There's no new apostles. That foundation has been laid, but we have the apostolic word right here. 
We also have pastors and teachers. We have pastors here. We have teachers here. We have men and women who teach in this place. We have these Bible studies that are going on. We have these Sunday school teachers. We have elders here. And these, these teaching ministries are to equip us, equip each of us for the work of service. The word is diakonia. It means to literally be a servant, to put, to put a, 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 an apron on and to serve. The actual, some of the basic of this word means to stir up dust, stir up dust. It's like, you know, servant, go get me this, go get me this. Yes, sir. Stirs up dust. Here, master, here, master. That's what the word means. And what it's, how it's being used here is, is we equip the saints to serve each other. To serve, to use their gifts and to serve, and that edifies the body of Christ. When people are serving each other, humbly serving each other, esteeming others better than themselves, that builds up the body of Christ. Because if you've been ever served by another brother or sister in Christ, I'll tell you what it does. It encourages you, it strengthens you, and it endears you to them. And that really brings about oneness. Oneness. And the conviction should grow within us. We are one. We are in union with Christ. We have the same spirit. We are in the same local body of believers. And God has sovereignly placed me in this body. Each of us should be saying this. Me in this body to build this body up, to serve this body, and to use my gifts to serve this body. You say, well, that's still pretty vague. Well, next week we're going to get a little bit more specific. But let me close by giving you some very specifics. What should I do then, Todd? How should I walk away? People like that. They always say to me, Todd, I'd like you to give us some practical. That, that helps me. Well, here's some. How, sh- how can I make this work? Number one, keep yourself spiritually healthy. Keep yourself spiritually healthy. Love Christ fervently. Don't lose your first love for him. Have your devotions. Grow in love. Be alive spiritually. How, how, how can I keep my body together? I can keep my body together when each part is doing its part well. My father, my father was he, was, he was strong. He was in good shape. He was active. He exercised. He was a good man. Didn't smoke, didn't overeat. Good man. He had one problem. He had a very, very weak, unhealthy heart. And for 30 years, he struggled. He had like 11 stents, five bypasses. And he, and he, but, and, and he would go walking. I, I'd, I'd go to the hospital with him and go into surgery. And I'd be, and all these, all these other people were fat, smoked all the time, hard, you know, they, they destroyed their bodies. They're getting wheeled in on wheelchairs to get their heart surgery. And my dad just walked in, just got off the farm, just walked in, just came back from hunting, just walked in and laid down on the bed to get his heart fixed. Everything else was good in him, but his heart was bad. And you see, dear friends, we all need each other. Each of you have a vital role. Keep yourself spiritually healthy. Secondly, when you come to church... Come to serve. Come to serve. That's your calling. That's your ministry. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. That's the way we should come to church. Come to church to serve. Don't come to churches to get your blessing. I'm going to hear Todd preach. I'm going to hear the music. I'm going to get my blessing, and I'm going to walk home. And I'm going to leave early. And I'm not going to talk to anybody. Don't do that. That's unbiblical. That's unsound. That's not what God wants. Come to serve. In fact, these should be some of the questions that should be rolling in our heads right now. How can I serve? Who do I serve? Let me give you some example. Let me give you again. We're just starting here. Just some of the basics. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll get into this more next week. 
Why don't you begin? Say, how do I begin this? I'll tell you how to begin. Begin by getting to know each other. How can you serve people that you don't even know? Make it a goal to meet new people every time you come to church. Now, let me look. Let me look. Let me look what we got here. Okay, I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm looking. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Hold on. Bear with me. Bear with me. Bear with me. Bear with me. I know every single person in this room. You say, yeah, well, you've been here longer than all of us, and you stand at that door. Yeah, I get that. I get that. No fair. I get that. Nevertheless, I know every single person in this room. That's the blessing of being a small church. I love small churches. I love small churches for that. Why don't you make it your goal to meet everybody in this room? That's an act of service. And then once you know everybody in this room, you know what's so cool about me knowing everybody in this room? The minute a visitor walks in, I know exactly who they are. I don't know who they are, but I know they're a visitor. And I make every effort beeline to get to know them and get to meet them. Can you imagine if we were all doing that? How welcome they would feel? How loved they would feel? That's service. That's putting the robe on and serving. And once you meet people, introduce yourself to them. Hey, I, you know, I don't know you. Uh, what's your name? Introduce you. Get to know them a little bit. And as you get to know them a little bit, eventually you may find out that there's a need. There's something in their life and there's a need. And then you can serve them. Hey, that sounds serious and that really concerns you. I'm going to pray for you this week about that. Uh, I'm going to pray for you. And you know what? Actually do it. A lot of people say, I'm going to pray for you. And you're like, yeah, really. Actually do it. Go and pray about that. Because I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You take that new person that you met, you take their name, and you hear about their need, and you take it home, and you get alone with God, and in your prayers, you mention that need. I'll tell you what's going to happen. Number one, you're going to remember their name next Sunday, which in my age, that's, that's, a, that's an accomplishment. And number two, your heart is going to be wedded to them. And then what I want you to do, the next week, because we're all supposed to be serving each other, go up to them and say, how did it go? I was praying for you this week. Do you know what a blessing that is when somebody does that to you? I hope you do. How that endears you to them. And you know what that's doing? That is binding us together in oneness. That's why Paul says, equip the saints to do the work of service, to edify the body until we become united. And that's how it happens. Maybe a need comes up and you don't even know. You can't meet that need. Or maybe it's a practical need. You can say, I can help you with that. Oh, I'll, take, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a ride uh, to, to, to go get your car inspected. Or you got to leak your roof, I can help you. You got a pipe, I can help you. Oh, you're struggling with a bill, I can help you. But maybe you can't help them. But you know somebody who can. You say, here, come here. I'd like to introduce you to Henry Russo. He fixes everybody's car in the world. He could probably put you on the list. He could probably get to you in about 100 years. <laughs> you find somebody who can. That's how the body serves one another and loves one another. And you know what that does? It deepens our oneness. Wow, what a blessing. That guy introduced me to Henry. Henry helped me get my car fixed. It, what, you're, you're united to this person. You're united to Henry. It's, it's oneness. It's oneness. Maybe a person needs advice. 
Maybe they're, they're, having, they're, they're, they're newly married or they're a new parent. And, 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 and the poor dear woman is like, I, I, I've got these two kids now and, and all I have is demands on me and I, I'm having a hard time struggling how to walk with God and things like that. And you might say to them, you know what? I can't quite relate to that, but I know somebody who can. There's a lot of dear mothers in Israel in this place. And let me, let me introduce you to, here, she, you know, she's raised children. She's wrestled with it. And there's, there's, there's union. There's oneness. There's oneness. A person person may be struggling with a temptation and need to be supported and encouraged. A person may be struggling with a sin and, and, key, and they need somebody to join them in that struggle and help them and hold them accountable. A person may be discouraged and need somebody to point them to the Lord and pray to them. A person may be, need to be discipled and, and you offer to meet and help them and get to know them. And that's what it means to serve. That's what it means to serve. And as we do this, we become one. Oneness reigns. A family, like the oneness in the Trinity, like the oneness in union with Christ, like the oneness in marriage, oneness in the church, and eventually God's going to bring the entire universe into oneness with himself. God is into oneness. We need to be into oneness. God does just want his family. He doesn't just want a family that doesn't fight. God wants one that is super close, that experiences oneness, that are committed to one another, that are close to each other, that deeply want each love each other, that delight in each other, and that humbly serve each other. We've heard you. Help us. Help us to be this. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this. Help us. You are one. We are one in you. We are one with each other. We just need to live it out. Help us, we pray. Help us to be one. Help us that this church will so glorify you that when people experience or see our oneness, it's a powerful witness. This gospel is true. Jesus is actually the Son of God. What these people believe must be true. Look at how diverse they are, but they're one. Oh, Father, we know this is your will for us. We know this is your desire. Give us grace. Pour out your spirit. Make us one, we pray. And for any who are outside of this, sitting in this room but feel an outsider, they're not in your family. They're not one with you. Save them, I pray. In Jesus' name we pray.